Welcome to a special edition of Research Minutes, presented by CIPRI and the CIPRI Knowledge Hub. I'm Keith Hugh Miller. Since 1996, when President Bill Clinton signed into law the Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act, immigration has become one of the defining political issues of our time. In recent years, debate has increasingly centered on immigration enforcement, the way we respond to undocumented immigrants living in or attempting to enter the country. And while politicians and others have reported at length on the personal and social impacts of immigration enforcement policies, relatively few studies have examined their impacts on education. Today, we look at two new studies that attempted to do just that. First, we sit down with Thomas D., the Barnett Family Professor with the Stanford University Graduate School of Education and Senior Fellow at the Stanford Institute for Economic Policy Research. His new study, co-authored with Stanford's Mark Murphy, offers a detailed look at the partnerships that exist between Immigrations and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, and local law enforcement agencies, and the impacts those partnerships can have on local schools and their students. The article, titled Vanished Classmates, The Effects of Local Immigration Enforcement on School Enrollment, was recently published in the American Educational Research Journal. I spoke with Tom to discuss what he learned about these partnerships and what his findings might say about our current approach to immigration enforcement. It's great to have you, Tom. Thanks, Keith. It's a pleasure to be here. To start, could you provide some context on how these partnerships have come to be and the work done by ICE in general? The genesis of these partnerships were 1996 revisions to the Federal Immigration and Nationality Act. In particular, Section 287G was introduced at that time, and that section authorizes what is now the Department of Homeland Security to form partnerships with state and local police agencies uh, that are interested in taking up interior immigration enforcement. So specifically, the language in the statute allows Homeland Security to deputize state and local police to enforce federal immigration law. So that means identifying, processing, and detaining uh, residents for immigration violations. There are some different models with how this has been rolled out. Some adopt what is called a jail enforcement model, where they will only try to detect immigration violations for uh, folks who are moving through the jailhouse. Another type of model is a task force model that is much broader and, and basically allows police to enforce immigration law as part of their daily routine. Now, this provision was largely ignored for about a decade, but in the wake of 9-11 and perhaps some growing animus around immigration issues, we begin to see them taken up in earnest around 2005 and then accelerating for the next five or six years from that point on. So what was it that drew you to conduct this study in particular? Was there a, a knowledge gap or a gap in the literature or was there a specific question that you were trying to answer? Yeah, I would say there's both a gap in the literature, but also I think I've a kind of intriguing way in which research ideas often surface, at least for me. It's often reading newspapers. So I remember over 10 years ago, reading anecdotal accounts in newspapers about how interior immigration enforcement efforts, uh, raids on work sites, you know, for immigration violations, things of that sort. There was rhetoric that it was creating ghost towns, right? That as an enforcement effort occurred, the undocumented labor force in the area would just scatter. And so it just got me thinking about, well, is that really, is that anecdote or is that happening systematically around the country? 
And so then under the Trump administration, when we had this resurgence of attention to immigration issues, I began taking up that issue. Now, the second element too was in examining the existing literature. Some folks had been looking at the question I just posed, but relying on census data, the American Community Survey, where you know surveyors will go out and ask people questions about their national origin, their their residency status, things of that sort, and studies that had leveraged those self reports hadn't been able to find demographic impact of these partnerships. But you know my concern was that. Those data are simply unreliable, and it occurred to me the the federally collected data on school enrollment would provide a better barometer for that demographic change. So Mark Murphy and I began investigating that. So it was a combination of sort of following what is just appears to be going on out in the world, and then intersecting it with the best kinds of data and methods we have available. And speaking of that work, you clearly put a lot of effort into the study, including relying on multiple Freedom of Information Act requests just to identify those counties where ICE partnerships have been approved. Could you walk us through your approach? Sure. And I think it's interesting to first begin with the Freedom of Information Act request because there's kind of a subtle craft to doing this well. Mark and I submitted a FOIA request to Homeland Security to find out about their immigration enforcement efforts. But it was hard to get quite the data we wanted. And they've since become somewhat recalcitrant in responding to FOIA requests. By looking at the literature, we were able to identify some other studies that have been successful. And in particular, there were two sociologists, Matthew Hall and Jacob Rue, who had gotten information on which counties had applied for 287G partnerships during that run-up in the late aughts and the ones that had been successful in, in acquiring them. So I reached out to Matthew and Jacob, and they generously provided us the fruits of their FOIA request. And they had used those data to study some of the economic impacts of 287G. We took their data and married it to the federal data on school enrollment and used that to examine the impact of, of the policy. And just a quick non-technical description of, of how we get at impact. Basically, we have data by county and year. So we see um, from the universe of counties where people had a, you know, local police had applied for these partnerships. And so we can observe what happens in the counties that adopted the partnerships before and after those partnerships were in effect. And that's going to reflect the impact of these ICE partnerships, as well as maybe a thousand other things that are changing over time. But we also have the contemporaneous data on places that applied for the partnerships but did not get them. And they provide, you know, a kind of compelling counterfactual for getting at sort of the causal effect of the policy. So we could separate the effect of the policy from the effect of what else might be happening over time. Now, so there are a couple of ways we try to validate that as a quick aside. Are the counties that applied but didn't get the partnerships a valid kind of control group here? Well, one way to check that is simply to say, does their Hispanic enrollment track with the treated counties similarly before the policy was adopted? If it's a good control group, it should. And we see evidence for that. And a second thing we do to try to validate this research design is we also look at the effect of the policy on non-Hispanic enrollment. If you know the mechanisms we're going to discuss are valid, they should be much more relevant for the Hispanic student population than the non-Hispanic. And where we find effects on Hispanic students, we don't find evidence of effects on non-Hispanic students. 
So anyway, the upshot of all of this, it gives us an unusual degree of certainty that this quasi-experimental approach is really getting at the causal impact of these policies. So regarding those impacts, I think a lot of us are curious to learn what you uncovered during the course of your study. So what impact, if any, did these partnerships have on local schools and students? The main result, which was really quite striking to me, was that within just two years, we see a 10% reduction in Hispanic enrollment, uh, unique to the counties that were adopting these ICE partnerships. And again, they were trending similarly with you know, not adopting counties before then. It really is when the policies come online, you see this sharp reduction in Hispanic enrollment. There's no such effect among non-Hispanic students. So that's our major finding. But we also did some secondary analyses to get at other impacts the ICE partnerships might have had on schools. So for example, if someone wanted to advocate for this policy, they might say, well, yes, it drove away some people or drove them out of the schools, displaced them in some way. Maybe that reduced class sizes. Maybe that improved the socioeconomic status of classroom peers. We examine those questions and find no evidence for that. That's interesting. Did your team consider any possible explanations for that significant decline that you saw in enrollment? Why would these partnerships have that effect? And what kinds of short or long-term impacts could it have on students? Yeah, this is really an important question because it gets to understand the kind of uh, social welfare effect of these reforms. We really have to drill down to some of the mechanisms. And we've identified really three relevant mechanisms for this sharp enrollment decline. The first and most obvious one is simply existing residents who feel threatened or uncomfortable in their community because of this aggressive local police enforcement of immigration laws might simply leave. So that kind of out mobility uh, is one major possibility. Now, another possibility is that perhaps Hispanic residents as well as undocumented residents who wanted to move into the community, who would have moved to the community in search of economic opportunity, choose not to once those policies are in place. So arresting the in-migration of people is a second mechanism. Now, third mechanism is that among existing students, they may simply drop out. So for example, what we know about undocumented residents is often they have children who are in fact US citizens. So if say, you know, a, a high school Hispanic high school student who's a US citizen has an undocumented parent and that parent needs to leave or move for some reason, that student might remain in place but drop out of high school. So those are three mechanisms: increased out migration, arrested in migration, and the potential for dropout effect. Now, our results suggest there's probably not so much of a dropout effect because the enrollment declines are particularly concentrated in elementary school, not high schools. So we think it's that residential mobility dimension that's important. Now, the second part of your question is, what effects could this have on students? Now, we don't examine that directly, but we can appeal to an existing literature that has studied the effects of student mobility on outcomes. And that literature makes a distinction between two types of moves. There are strategic moves that a family might take in search of economic opportunity. Those are generally, uh, you know, there's not a particularly harmful effect of those types of moves. In fact, they might be beneficial because you're going to a place where you'll have better economic circumstances. But reactive moves, moves taken under duress, appear to have a negative effect. And particularly if they occur multiple times, 
So those sorts of reactive moves can be particularly harmful. We conjecture in the paper, though we don't have direct evidence on this, that that there may be harm for incumbent students who are losing their friends and classmates in the presence of these policies. Those those friends and classmates are disappearing. And again, as I noted earlier, we're, we're not documenting any evidence of reduced class sizes or improvements in the economic status of peers. And and I think part of the context that explains this too is a lot of these policies were rolling out during the Great Recession when many districts may have seen, well, we've lost some students, but we have fewer resources too, and we needed to get rid of some teachers. So it kind of gave them the, the degrees of freedom to keep class sizes where they were. So Tom, what do you think are the implications here, particularly in light of the expansion of these forms of partnerships in recent years and the ongoing debate over immigration enforcement in general? Yeah, that's a great question. And we view ourselves as providing evidence, not necessarily making policy recommendations. But I think if we step back for a moment, certainly these policies are very hard to justify in terms of child development. I mean, we've uncovered evidence of the general demographic impact of these ICE police partnerships, but also that they're really having effects on kids by either compelling them to undertake developmentally harmful reactive moves or limiting their capacity to move towards economic opportunity. Neither of those are defensible in terms of child development. But I think it's important to embed this in the broader literature uh, regarding these ICE partnerships. Other studies have found that there was really no impact of these partnerships in terms of reducing crime. And for many communities, that was kind of a prime motivation for them. The available literature suggests not only was there no impact, it increased certain types of crime, in particular kind of violent interactions between police and community members. Because one of the allegations about these agreements is they erode police departments' capacity to do community policing because victims of crime become increasingly unwilling to come forward when there's this heightened threat from local police doing immigration enforcement. So yeah, it's hard to defend the policies on those grounds. And I think it's also important to recognize there's harm to the local economy. These policies effectively are a negative labor supply shock, scaring away a substantial part of a community's vibrant labor force. And so there's evidence of that in terms of declining farm productivity, in terms of increased housing foreclosures. So I think anyone who appeals to the research literature is going to have a hard time justifying why communities should take up these policies uh, in terms of what we're observing. And that brings us to my last question. Do you think there are opportunities here for future research, either for you or others who are working in this area? Yeah, I think there are substantial ones. So one of the issues that my collaborator, Mark Murphy, and I are taking up is trying to understand the impact of our current aggressive wave of interior immigration enforcement. Recall that the period we studied was ended around 2011, where there was a dramatic run-up in these policies. But the Obama administration eventually recognizing how they had been problematic, in particular, there were allegations that it led to police abuses, Fourth Amendment violations, where police were harassing local citizens based on how they spoke or how they dressed. Uh, it led to some to a pullback from those policies, but under the Trump administration, they've become a priority, and we now have nearly twice as many ICE police partnerships as we had a decade ago. So, understanding the impact of that, I think, is critically important. 
though somewhat, and it's somewhat dark and ironic that these policies may not have an effect now because there's such a breadth to the degree of interior immigration enforcement. So this enforcement effort may be so general that there's nothing unique now about 287G partnerships. But that's one thing we're exploring. I think a second and broad area that's relevant, not just to researchers, but also to policymakers and practitioners, is understanding, identifying, and supporting our students who may be traumatized by these kinds of events. And that has different threads in it. Part of it is going to leverage what we know about supporting the learning trajectory, say, of English learner students. And some of it's going to involve what we know about supporting students who may be experiencing some degree of stress or even trauma. And so I think both the research community and the practitioner community should be thinking about these issues and collaborating in ways that support our children. Certainly couldn't be a more timely area of inquiry. And um, your work here is just tremendous. I encourage all of our listeners who are interested in learning more to go read the full paper. Again, it's titled Vanished Classmates, The Effects of Local Immigration Enforcement on School Enrollment in the American Educational Research Journal. Or you can also access it at cepa.stanford.edu. Tom D., thanks so much for joining us today. It was a pleasure, Keith. Thank you. We move now from the local to the national level, and a new study examining how federal immigration enforcement policies have impacted schools across the country. Patricia Gandara, research professor with UCLA, and Jong-Yeon Yee, assistant professor with the Loyola Marymount University School of Education, recently examined the perceptions of thousands of educators, school leaders, counselors, and other personnel across the U.S. in an effort to understand how immigration policies and immigration enforcement have impacted their students. Their study, titled The Impact of Immigration Enforcement on the Nation's Schools, was recently published in the American Educational Research Journal. Both researchers work with the Civil Rights Project at UCLA, where Patricia currently serves as co-director. Jung Yun, who goes by Joy, is a research associate there. I recently had the chance to speak with them about their new study and its implications for policy, practice, and future research. We begin with Patricia, explaining how U.S. immigration policy has changed in recent years and what led to this line of research. Well, for some time, actually, even before the Trump administration, we were doing a lot of deportations of families, which, of course, affects the children. But what's really different in this era is the attitude towards these families and the effects on the children, which have been really exacerbated by this administration, so that we've seen children being separated from their parents at the border, children being lost in the system. And this is really pretty new for the U.S. So in that context, we were, we've been tracking on this as a civil rights issue because every resident of the U.S. has certain civil rights and noticing that people really weren't talking much about how this is impacting schools, the schools that these children attend. So we decided to do some research on this and find out what was the answer to that. So for this study, you conducted surveys with more than 5,300 educators and school personnel, representing more than 760 schools across 13 states. So Joy, could you give us a general overview of your study design? 
What were you looking for and how did you go about finding it? We started working on this research project about two years ago to understand educators' perception of impact of immigration enforcement activities on their school communities. And we decided to survey educators across the nation. And in regards to survey questions, our survey instrument was based largely on reports from media across the nation regarding the impact of immigration enforcement on children and their families. And we made sure that our survey questions reflected the two primary topics. One is the overall impact of immigration enforcement activities perceived by educators. And the other topic is about educators' responses to immigration issues. Specifically, the survey asked educators' impression of the impact of immigration enforcement on students and parents of students, including topics like absenteeism, behavioral and emotional problems, academic performance, indirect effects on classroom climate, students' overt expression of concerns, effects on students due to their concerns for friends and classmates, parents' expression of concerns, parental involvement, and bullying. So I would say that the impact that was measured in our survey is a highly comprehensive indicator of what's going on in our school communities. And When it comes to a response scale, most responses in our survey were on a five-point Likert scale, with one being no and five being extensive. We um, also took advantage of existing data sources, like a National Center for Education Statistics Common Core of Data, so that we could figure out school characteristics, like a student demographics, school location, and Title I status. So, Keith? I think I would add to that that a part of uh, the study design was to include all four major census areas of the U.S. so that we're able to actually compare, to some extent, how this is affecting schools in the different areas of the United States, in the Northeast, in the South, in the middle part of the country, and in the West. I think we'll talk about that later, that we actually do see differences there. In analyzing the data and the responses from your work, it seems you uncovered a number of noteworthy findings, beginning with the fact that the vast majority of respondents said their students had overtly expressed a fear of immigration enforcement intervention in their lives, and nearly as many said that they had observed emotional and behavioral issues among their immigrant students. Yeah, that's a, such an important point. Almost 85% of respondents reported observing students' explicit expressions of fear of an ICE intervention in their lives. And more than 40% of those respondents said that this was extensive. And such concerns stood out particularly in an urban area that had more immigrant student populations. <laughs> Nevertheless, I would say that it would vary from community to community, depending on types of local industry and the characteristics of immigrant populations living there. For example, Scott County District in Mississippi, where recent ice race took place, it's a rural community in terms of the census locale definition. But the place was a target of immigration enforcement activities, and I'm pretty sure that every student in that district school was disrupted substantially in many ways, like academically, emotionally, 
and mentally, whether they are from immigrant families or not. Therefore, a cautious interpretation might be necessary in terms of reading our studies findings. And when it comes to educators observing emotional and behavioral problems among their students, 80% of respondents said that they had witnessed those issues, which can interfere students' ability to attend lessons and eventually can affect students' academic performance, including test scores, dropout rates, and graduation rates. And this concern was fairly consistent across the regions. I could add a quote here from uh, a counselor, and I believe this was a counselor somewhere in the South. I think that her comments just make it really clear what that impact is like. She says, the kids are scared and sometimes they hide for days when there are immigration raids in the area. Some of the students have no food or place to live because the parents no longer have a job and they go day by day. And I, I don't think this has been brought home clearly enough to the public, how this is affecting really even the ability of children to have a place to live or have food to eat as a result of what is going on. In your paper, you note that these impacts don't seem to be limited to immigrant students. Their peers seem to be affected as well. Oh, absolutely. And this was something that was very important for us to look at because it seems pretty evident that if your family is being targeted, you are pretty unnerved by that and probably having difficulty in school, even paying attention. And of course, that's exactly what teachers told us. But how is this likely to affect the other kids in the school? And that, we think, is a really important issue because 85% of these schools were Title I schools. They're already struggling. They have kids with tremendous needs that are not being met. And then this is laid over on top of all of that. How would this likely affect the other kids? And two-thirds of educators told us it is affecting all the kids in the school. It's affecting their peers. And I think one of the images that I hold in my mind that a teacher had talked about was the empty desk. The empty desk is being kind of a symbol for what is happening in the schools and in those classrooms. And the rest of the children file into school and they look at the desk that is now empty that was their best friend or the kid that they were sitting next to is no longer there. This is really unnerving all of the children. And of course, when children come to school upset and crying and unable to participate, that affects instruction in the whole classroom. The teacher has to stop what the teacher is doing, uh, the lesson that's trying to, that they're trying to impart in order to deal with the socio-emotional issues that are going on in their classrooms. So we know from data here that, you know, this is a widespread issue of affecting all kids and really all the educators in the school as well. So were your findings consistent across the regions you studied, or did responses vary depending on district location or the demographics of particular schools? Some regional variations in terms of educators' responses emerged. For example, with respect to declining academic achievement, more than two-thirds of respondents in both the Northeast and the South reported observing a drop in achievement among their students. 
Additionally, two-thirds of respondents from the South reported increased absenteeism to be a problem, which was the highest among all areas. We also found that more than 70% of respondents from the South reported indirect effects on students because of their concerns for their classmates and friends threatened by immigration enforcement. So these findings show that there is pervasive fear and concern in the schools we surveyed, despite some regional variations. But um also like to highlight some findings that we didn't find any statistically significant differences across the regions, like educators noticed increased behavioral and emotional problems among their students, and they also reported their students expressing concerns and fears in school. Over 80% of educators in our sample regardless of where they are, they pointed out these as critical issues that could possibly affect students' schooling experiences. The other thing that I'd like to underscore in our study's findings is that the higher the percentage of a white students in school, the more educators reported higher levels of impact of immigration enforcement which could imply that immigrant students could be exposed to a hostile and anti-immigrant environment in that school setting. And this finding is also aligned with another study that came out in 2017, which was conducted by Dr. John Rogers and his team at UCLA. They surveyed 1,500 high school educators to investigate overall impact of the political rhetoric on high school students. And similar to our study, this study's findings show that predominantly white schools became aggressive environments for racial and religious minority students. And I believe that the findings of our study, as well as of Dr. Rogers' study, imply that President Trump's racist remarks may have given a green light to many people, including students in expressing racial slurs to their peers from immigrant families and minority backgrounds in terms of race, ethnicity, and of course, immigration status. Just add uh, one thing to that, and that is that we had a quite a robust sample, I believe it was around 1,800 respondents in California, which of course is well known to be a, a sanctuary state. This did appear to have some impact on the strength of the responses of educators in the schools. Just consistently about 10% fewer people reported the negative effects on the kids. We don't think that is because it was any less virulent here in California. But the fact that the schools had named themselves sanctuaries and that the state had named itself a sanctuary state, we think, you know, I, I think this is worthy of more investigation, but we think may be helping to some extent downplay the really egregious effects on the children. We touched on this a little bit already, but I would be curious to know what you think the implications of this study are particularly in light of the more recent shifts in federal immigration policy we've seen here in the U.S. Uh, but before we do that, um, Joy, are there any limitations or caveats that we should be aware of? Well, when it comes to limitations of this study, 
I think we should address our data collection process a little bit, which might have shaped our data in an important way. The way we designed this study deliberately tried to cover the four regions of the country, West, Midwest, South, and Northeast, as Patricia explained earlier. Then we started contacting school districts in each region using our human network and educators who did need this kind of research, including those who work in school or school district. They also helped us get other school districts by connecting us through their networks. So we literally knocked the door of many school districts asking if they could participate in this study. And of course, not all school districts couldn't join this study for bureaucratic reasons or lack of interest, etc. And throughout this process, those who wanted to get their voices heard tended to participate in our study more. And we have a slightly larger number of educators from the South and the West compared to the Midwest and the Northeast. Also, the way we chose schools in a school district was a vary by lateral process than we anticipated. We originally created a list of schools for each school district to distribute the survey using our sampling method and gave the list to the district before making the final decision. However, some districts recommended that we contact particular schools where there were more immigrant students or English language learners around. Consequently, about half of the district used our suggested sampling and about half chose to sample from the schools that they thought would be of greatest interest. But I would say that this district level decision to take part in this study hardly affected individual educators responding to our survey because the survey was completely voluntary and anonymous. And we actually had a quarter of respondents saying that they hadn't observed any students concerned about immigration issues. So I think that's kind of evidence that shows that we reached out to a fairly mixed group of individuals in our study. So with that in mind, Patricia, what do you think the implications are here? What can educators, policymakers, and other stakeholders take away from your work? Well, we actually asked this question of people. So given the situation as it is, what do you think needs to be done? And this, I think, was one of the more interesting findings that we had was that almost everybody, I mean, something like 87% of respondents across the board, whether they were teachers, counselors, administrators, felt that the schools needed to reach out to the communities, that their communities were terrorized and it was affecting everything that was going on in the schools and that they had a responsibility to reach out to the community and help them understand what was happening and help them know what it is that they could do and what the school could do. But a relatively small percentage of people had actually done this either at the school level or individually. So that tells us that people in the schools feel that there is a real need for schools to reach out, but they really don't know how to do it. And they need some guidance on this. So we've been considering conversations with legislators about what kinds of ways that the state or local county offices can help the schools to know what they can do, what they can't do, how to reach out to families, provide some access or at least referrals for legal services 
And there's a huge need for some mental health support because both the students and the educators in these schools are really suffering. So, Joy, are there any opportunities here for future research, either for you and Patricia or others who are working in this area? Um, of course, we definitely need a lot of work to document the voices of students, parents of students, and educators in different contexts across the nation to promote discussions around immigration and immigrant students. We also need more studies to identify short-term and long-term results in many areas, including academic outcomes from test scores to graduation rates and dropout rates, as well as economic outcomes from school funding to the impact of both low current state economy. For now, Patricia and I just embarking on a book project in which we hope to extend our study both quantitatively and qualitatively, since we haven't fully shared the data we collected from educators in this published article. And hopefully we can advance more discussions around this issue. And I will just add to that a kind of an emphasis on I think we need to do some more long-term research on these Title I schools and how Title I schools that serve the poorest of our children and the children with the greatest needs also turns out they disproportionately serve immigrant students who are under attack. And we need to know how this is affecting the outcomes for everybody in these schools and how this is affecting the national agenda for closing achievement gaps. Well, this is certainly thought-provoking work, and it couldn't be more timely. Um, for those who would like to learn more, I suggest listeners go read the full paper titled The Impact of Immigration Enforcement on the Nation's Schools, and that's been published in the American Educational Research Journal. Patricia Gandara and Joy E., thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for the opportunity, Keith, and I would just have people keep their eyes out for a book that we expect to come out in 2020 on this issue. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks for listening to this week's Research Minutes, presented by the CPRI Knowledge Hub. For more episodes of this podcast, or to subscribe to the series, visit us at cprehub.org. That's c-p-r-e-hub.org. To share thoughts on today's episode, or to suggest future topics, follow us on Twitter at CPreHub.